This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is sponsored by ArtBase. Are you managing an art collection, an artist studio, or a gallery? Is it time to bring your collection management skills up to a professional level? We think so. Well, ArtBase is the right software to manage your art business. ArtBase allows you to track your artworks and contacts in an easy-to-use, powerful database. You just enter your data once and use that data to generate reports, offers, contracts, and much more. They've got a brand new version out with a whole new look that can be used on the cloud from any location on any device. So what are you waiting for? Go to artbase.com now to learn more and be sure to mention Art Tactic for a 15% discount. Over the past 12 years, the Art Tactic podcast has grown to be a leading art market podcast. Each week we share an exclusive in-depth interview with a key art world insider. As we move into a new phase of programming, we want our broadcast to be listener-supported and create content that you want to hear, not what we think you want to hear. You can support us by visiting contribute.to slash arttactic. Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Green. As we hopefully are finally seeing the light at the end of the tunnel regarding the COVID pandemic, it's interesting to reflect on the art market today and how different it is compared to early 2020. The art market has changed in many ways, whether it's new trends in art, who's actually buying the art, or what kind of art we're buying. So in this week's episode of the podcast, we chat with Kelly Crow, art market reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Kelly has recently written a few really interesting articles reflecting on how the art world is coming out of the pandemic, and she's kind enough to chat with us about it. So hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks so much for listening. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Of course. So there's been a seemingly substantial shift in taste for certain contemporary artists and even types of artworks during the pandemic. Who and what is in favor now and how much do we think this had to do with the pandemic, the social unrest, and the rise in social media when we were isolated? I mean, so much of the world changed that it seems simple, but it's 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 not obvious, but I think it's true that, that the art would have to change as well, right? So I think some of the trends that we're seeing now are were probably in place. Um, there's, you know, art is such a continuum that it doesn't always do just a hard left turn or a hard right, but I do feel like um, the pandemic has had a huge effect on just recalibrating taste up and down the food chain. So some things that were maybe already starting to become a little bit less fashionable are like really persona non grata now, and then some things that were starting to gather momentum, works by women, works by black artists, have just really taken off um, in the wake of, you know, the shared historic experience that we had of lockdown and quarantine and, and global pandemic. Yeah, and at the same time, as you touched on, there's been a certain number of artists who have actually experienced significant market slowdowns. In one of your recent articles in the Wall Street Journal, you detailed Jeff Koons' softening market as an example of one of several more established artists whose markets have declined the past few years. And for Koons, this is occurring right after his iconic rabbit sculpture sold at auction for $91 million. To what extent has his market declined and how much does this have to do with what we lived through in the pandemic or what are insiders saying is the reason why there is this slowdown for artists like Koons? 
It's interesting. I do feel like in, you know, during the pandemic, the demand for huge, shiny sculptures that you would put on your plaza or that you would really sort of put to impress maybe other people seemed to sort of fall out of favor and, um, and pieces that were, you know, intimate and figural and pieces of, you know, that showed people, right, because we were sort of missing seeing faces. We weren't really seeing that many faces. And so, you know, people were gravitating to, you know, Alice Neal and uh, and Dana Schutz and sort of people who paint people, uh, right? A lot of the uh, um, black artists that are doing really well today are painting, you know, like uh, – Faces, you know, Jordan Castile, right, paints, you know, faces that we see, you know, in Harlem and faces that she, you know, shop, shop, uh, shop owners and the like. And so I, I think that with Coons, on the one hand, there's nowhere to, you know, there's nowhere to go but down when you're on top, right, when you're the most expensive living artist. The bar is... Uh, uncomfortably high um, to sort of keep that momentum and and probably unfair to ask an artist to sort of climb the mountain and stay there the entire time. But, you know, when your works are selling for $90 million and you're alive, um, the pressure is really on to, to maintain some sort of a momentum. Um, and the trouble is that his works take a lot of time and require a lot of effort, right? They require a lot of I mean, major pieces require, until now, right, a payment plan where you had to sort of, you know, make payments on a thing that you might not see for years and years and years. And and some collectors, even before the pandemic, had started to bristle at that because they were like, how many, you know, how many decades am I going to bang on this thing before I can actually enjoy it? Other people would finally get their piece and then have to, you know, sell it to sort of, you know, um, I don't know. Just their 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 life or, or taste or investment ideas had changed, and so it's. Um, I think he's just he he's such an ambitious artist, um, and yet so much of what he does is shiny and mirrored and um, and has a very specific aesthetic, right? And so you are constantly going to have to find collectors who are seeking a little bling um, in order to keep feeding that beast. Um, and, and apparently Larry Gagosian and David Zwerner <laughs> weren't, weren't enough. I mean, the engines, those are huge, massive engines of, of, of pipeline. Um, but, um, but I guess he, he felt like he needed to go to pace to sort of mix it up. I'm, I'm hearing that, um, just as Larry told me, that he was beginning to sort of reconfigure the contract with Coons to absorb the fabrication costs up front. At least he was proposing that. That might actually make things happen a little faster if it wasn't on a payment plan. Um, and I, um, and I've been assured by Pace that while the, you know, mucky mucky details aren't sure that they are going to be making sure that his current lineup of pieces get made. So I just think, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, going to have every major artist has an ebb and a flow um, and I just think he's sort of in one of these weird years where it's going to be harder to offload his pieces um, but you know I mean obviously his new gallery will tell you that they have a lineup of collectors who are chopping at the bit so I guess we'll see yeah it'll be very interesting to see how all of that plays out and one part of your recent article in the Wall Street Journal that I found especially fascinating was about Cindy Sherman let me quote you you wrote Perennial favorite Cindy Sherman sits at the crosshairs of competing trends. As a woman artist, she should be in feverish demand, but large-scale photography, like her recent wall-sized selfies, appear to lack the political potency that's highly sought out after right now, dealers say. 
So the position of an artist like Cindy Sherman is pretty compelling because she's a female artist and the market has an especially strong appetite right now for talented female artists. Yet perhaps her market isn't experiencing an uptick because of the content of the artwork. Yeah, and it's just I think it's, it has to do with scale as much as subject matter. It's strange. I feel like a few years ago every auction catalog we saw had a Thomas Struth, had a um, you know, had a had a big Sujimoto, um, had, you know, um, big Cindy Sherman's if you remember her exhibit at the uh, MoMA a few years back. I mean, the the pieces themselves were almost wall size the photography, right? And that was uh, really in, in style for a while. And um, I just think sometimes tastes just change and large-scale photography's had a hard go. I'll also say that I think the, pic- the picture generation has had kind of a weird go. You see Pace taking up uh, Robert Longo, some of the other Metro Pictures artists, this picture generation artists, even Richard Prince is having a tough time. So I think some of it's just, you know, what's in fashion and, and and what new collectors, right? And a lot of them are, you know, young, young, uh, young folks sort of making money in China and and elsewhere in the East. And so, what kind of works are they gravitating to, right? And so, the kind of coy, conceptual um, pictures generation, you know, wittiness. Maybe that's not translating as well right now uh, with newer wealthy collectors. They want something either lush and beautiful, or more easy to digest, or um, we're just different, right? And and Cindy Sherman should be benefiting as a woman, but um, but she also hasn't been absent in the way that like a Grace Hardigan has, right? Or Alice Neal. I mean, she's always she has been a presence, continues to be. Um, I think you know I would I would even kind of lump her in the same strata as like Tracy Emin in terms of an artist who hasn't. It's not like she's a rediscovery, right? So she hasn't fallen off the map and been prized as sort of a newfound thing. Uh, and so you know maybe some of that familiarity of her being in the ether is also, you know, maybe breeding a little contempt. I don't know. I'm sure it'll pass because she's hugely important and influential. But, um, yeah, I was surprised that nobody really wanted her piece that uh, Christie's put in in May. And that just was kind of like the, you know, I think a warning shot that, um, yeah, people are looking elsewhere currently. And I know this next topic, it's been discussed at nauseum. But you touched on NFTs briefly in your article. Do you have a sense to what extent the mainstream art world, whether it be collectors or galleries, are embracing NFTs? I think that is the big, big, big $10 question right now. I think that um, definitely galleries um, are rushing to accept cryptocurrency. So that is, I think they're like more willing to accept cryptocurrency right now perhaps than NFTs. Um, there are galleries like Lehman Mopin and um, Pace and others that are accepting cryptocurrency. Even Christie's and Sotheby's Christie's told me they had, you know, they had done a hundred million, nearly a hundred million dollars worth of deals just in the first half of this year alone, um, through sort of by accepting Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and Ether and all that. So I think the, you know, your money will spend in the art world, however, whatever form it is. I think the big question is sort of when will NFT artists get that respect that um, that they're craving um, beyond their sort of core peer group. And I think museums play a role in that because museums have really not, because I think because of all the market froth, right, they haven't really weighed in, aside from maybe the new museum, on um, on the merits of some of the pieces that have been sort of really sort of championed by the market. So I'm, I am genuinely curious to see... Um, museums may not be so interested in the digital, the 
the the buying and selling the trading mechanism right the the way that the pieces are bundled but i'm curious if they if i start seeing exhibitions that include artists like if you're going to have a a figuration show or a show of portraiture and and maybe some of the portraits right are digital um and they happen to be nfts then then I think that would go a long way to sort of encouraging collectors and curators to sort of take those pieces more seriously. So I think, like anything, it's kind of a Wild West moment for NFTs, and a lot of things are getting shaken out. A lot of the norms are still getting settled. A lot of the roster is still sort of shaking out. Um, And I do feel like the cream will rise to the top, and I feel like, you know, museums, I'm sure, and curators are trying to figure out sort of, you know, the the wheat from the chaff, if you will. Um, and I think it's really only when you get some institutional support for some of these um, artists, or at least sort of top, top, top tier gallery support, um, that, that regular everyday collectors will start to sort of take these pieces more seriously. But, you know, this is fun. I mean, how, how often in our world, and all the time that I've been covering it, has a whole new sort of asset just sort of, you know, mushroomed um, into the playground, right, that we all that we all mix in. It's kind of fun to sort of have that energy and uh, um, watch even the speculation, although it's dangerous. I wouldn't put my, you know, father's retirement money into, uh, into a ton of NFTs, but I also wouldn't tell him, you know, not to play if he found a piece that he loved. So it's kind of just sifting. I think we're in just a real sifting period for NFTs. You also reported on Christie's robust first half numbers. Some of the auction house numbers are finally trickling in, and this really provides a lot of much-needed transparency for the art market and for us to get a better grasp on where things stand. So for context, how is the auction market doing relative to before and even during the pandemic, and how much does the Asian millennial buyer have to do with this? Yeah, I, honestly, I thought it did surprisingly well. When I when I saw that Christie's had sold $3.5 billion in the first half, I mean, you're going back to 2012, 2013 to get those kind of numbers. So, and those years were pretty strong. Um, I feel like, the, I mean, when I first started covering the market, a $6 billion year was big for both houses combined. And now we're like, okay, we're at 3.5 for one house. So, um, and Sotheby's sold about, I think, auction at least 2.8. Um, billion. So um, there, Christie's that 3.5, I think, was um, included around 850 million dollars in private sales too. So private sales way up, right? 850. They had kind of had a slump in private sales a few years back, but they've really doubled down. So Christie's is doing better with their private sales than they were even pre-pandemic. And uh, and yeah, and I do feel like this sort of surge of young wealthy, under the age of 45, (laughs) um, wealthy (sighs) millennial, for lack of a better, I mean, they are, that's the generation that they're in all across Asia, from Jakarta to Singapore to Taiwan to mainland China. Um, You just have such a huge um, generation of um, often second and third generation wealthy, right, young people who um, who have grown up, right, going to Art Basel, Hong Kong, who have grown up sort of seeing these, uh, seeing the Long Museum come around, watching the the Freeport go up in Singapore. And for them, art is a part of their life, and they're um, buying what they like. I mean, if you look at sort of the sales figures for a guy like Mr. Doodle, right, like your mouth will drop. It's just amazing how they are already sort of reshaping and and putting values on things that they like that may not dictate to Western taste, but we'll probably all have to catch up with them at some point because that's just, you know, we tend to follow the money and they are learning and growing and buying what they like, but they're not just buying, 
you know, Asian art anymore. They're buying everything. Um, and I've, I've, it's been, I get tickled, but I love how, you know, they've, they've so quickly shifted from, you know, from cause and Eddie Martinez to now they're buying, you know, <laughs> uh, black artists and they're buying, you know, they're bidding up Carrie James Marshall and they're bidding up artists that are very American and telling a very American story. So not even a global story. They're very interested in, artists who are painting, you know, what's cool and happening here in America. So, yeah, I mean, gosh, where do you, where do you take the, like, really good pieces are going all over the planet now. And so I'm very curious to see how, how their shape, how their tastes reshape what we think is cool. And, um, and certainly it recalibrates the price levels for artists across the board when they're playing, when they're bidding across the board, you know, and not just on their own, own home, home, home artists. Yeah. I remember, a decade ago, probably longer actually, talking with galleries and auction houses about what their strategies were for how they could entice and educate Asian collectors so they would start collecting non-Asian contemporary artists. And we've really come a long way and not that long of a time. You know, I remember going to Hong Kong and suddenly like every gallery that was there had just suddenly, you know, add, adding Chinese artists to the roster, right? Or you had like Ensom Kiefer painting Chairman Mao, right, into paintings. And you were just kind of like, what? It felt, it felt so overt, right? The hunt felt so overt for their attention. And now it just it feels much more organic, and it feels like they're finding the artists and that consigners and auction houses are, like, much more willing to put a piece into a sale in Hong Kong without feeling like that's, a, a like, a last-ditch resort sale. Like, that's proving to be a smart move um, a lot of the times. And I think the... Asian buyers are recognizing, like, oh, yeah, like, we're where it's at right now. So, yeah, you should bring your basket out to us. Like, you know, we're going to buy it. <laughs> if you bring it over here, we're going to buy it. And so um, it's not sucker money, but it's certainly more – they're much more invested in the whole range of what the art market is selling and producing uh, rather than just their own uh, Asian works of art. And I think that's – you know, that can't help but be good. It's just it's really fun to watch it unfold. It's going to be a very busy second half of the year for the art world as so many art fairs and different events are squeezed in to the second part of 2021. What are a few of the major areas that you'll have your eye on during this last part of the year? Yeah, I'm very interested to see how the art world, right, which was such an event-driven ecosystem, how sort of it begins to reconvene. Because you can go to museums now pretty easily. You can go to galleries. We've seen now with Freeze that it's possible to go to an art fair. And I think we all had fun sort of getting back together again. But, you know, um, Basel in September will be really interesting to watch. I feel like really Art Basel in December will be the bigger test of sort of the art markets, you know, the art world's sort of full strength as far as maximum capacity. September might feel a little soon um, to, to go to Europe, but I, and there are some quarantine restrictions for some countries, and but I feel like Miami in December will be really interesting to watch. I also think people are kind of keeping an eye on the major houses in New York just to see how does it feel to sort of get everyone back in a room. So Phillips didn't end up allowing a lot of bidding in the room in June, and so that's really pushed to the the higher stakes moment again to sort of back into November, October, November. So last year, again, was so fractured. The houses were just kind of doing catch-as-catch-can sales every other month, um, and it was pretty splintered. Did well, but did but was pretty splintered. And so I think 
you know, I know that Christie's is working to sort of reconfigure their sales room there in Rockefeller Center to allow for more people. So I'm curious to see sort of how many people they'll allow back in and what that, what that experience will look like, right? How long will it take before we feel comfortable sitting shoulder to shoulder? I think it'll be a while. And so what form does that take and what freedom does that give the auction houses then to sort of not be beholden to that, that calendar, right? Like what, in what ways are they going to be flexing by offering or trying to offer live stream sales that don't require us to be there? And and maybe collectors, you know, have gotten really used to live streaming. It's uh, much easier to kind of just eat a sandwich and bid on art when you're not in the room, <laughs> right? So yep. it may be, uh, I'm very curious to see how permanent, right, some of these triage moments were of the pandemic. How permanent is it um, that we just want to be able to bid on things around the world at the same time um, without being there? Um, and, and, in, and what are the moments that we feel like we really need to show up for, right? Sort of who's worthy of that kind of commitment and risk. And so I'm, uh, definitely paying attention to major auctions, major fairs, major museum openings, um, moments where we just feel like, ah, we can't, we got to be there. So we'll see. Well, Kelly, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and chatting with us about some of the changing trends in the art market and art world over the last year and a half. And if our listeners don't already, they definitely should check out all of your writings in the Wall Street Journal. And you're also covering the art world on social media. Where can our listeners find you there? Yeah, my handle on on all of them is just Kelly Crow WSJ. Should be pretty easy to find me. Thanks a lot. Perfect. Thanks again. We want to thank ArtBase for sponsoring this week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast. Are you managing an art collection, an artist studio, or gallery? Is it time to bring your collection management skills up to a professional level? Well, ArtBase is the right software to manage your art business. ArtBase allows you to track your artworks and contacts in an easy-to-use, powerful database. All you do is enter your data once, and you use that data to generate reports, offers, contracts, and a bunch more. They've got a brand new version out with a whole new look that can be used in the cloud from any location on any device. So go to ArtBase.com now to learn more, and be sure to mention Art Tactic for a 15% discount.